Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be there. 2 Corinthians is a book that we are actually going to do this fall. So this morning, I'm going to give you a couple of tastes of books that we're going to be going into over the next year. Currently, the uh, four books that we'll do um, going into 2023, we're going to start out with Ecclesiastes. We will do uh, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and then we will also do um, 2 Corinthians in the fall. So those are four of the books that we will do. We may add in one more sprinkled in there, um, but as you know, we're trying to get through all the books of the Bible in the last about decade or so, and uh, we're almost there and are coming down to those last few. I'm excited about the book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't read it, when you read it, it's probably not an exciting book. You'll read it and be like, wow, this is brutal. But when you start to understand the context of the book of Ecclesiastes and who wrote it and when and why and kind of the purpose behind it, it's beautiful. It's one of, it can almost be one of your favorite books uh, of the Bible, I think, if you start to really think about it. And we'll touch on it this morning. Now, it's the new year, right? Um, it's not the biblical new year. We know scripturally that there were two new years, that God's people celebrated the new year on Passover in the Old Testament. That's when the people gathered and they considered it a new beginning. When in the Old Testament, they were slaves in Egypt, God delivered them out. They put blood on the doorpost to signify God passing over, the death would pass over their firstborn child, and then they would be delivered and allowed to go, and then God delivered them from slavery, from the land of the curse into the land of promise uh, and all the pictures that are there. And in the Old Testament, that was kind of the people of God's new year, right? It's like things have been made new. We're starting over. We're out of the old way. We're going in the new way. And then there was a second new year that the people of God would celebrate called Rosh Hashanah. That would be in the fall, and that was the world new year. It was the declaration to the world around them that God is giving you a chance to repent, to change, to declare his glory before he comes back to tabernacle with his people. So there are kind of two new years in the Old Testament. Neither of them fell on January 1st. Okay, so... Um, just so you're aware, and now we celebrate a new year, and we're going to look this morning that we should always be thinking about new things. Uh, as you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the title this morning is From Now On, because a lot of people right now will be saying, okay, it's January 1st, from now on, I'm going to do this. From now on, I'm going to, and it'll last Maybe five minutes, maybe five days, uh, five hours, I don't know. But they're going to say, from now on, this, I'm turning over a new leaf. And you'll look up and there's no leaves in about two months. You know, I mean, gym memberships skyrocket in January. And then you can go work out with hardly anybody there in about mid-February. At the gym you get a membership at if you're still committed. I mean... We are a people that like to make declarations. We like to make vows. We like to say things. But then when it really comes down to living it and allowing Christ to change us and live through us, we really struggle with the from now on. And it's almost like, well, as long as it's convenient. And when you look in Scripture and we're thinking about a new year, I want you to really think about going into the next year and asking yourself, okay, what's life about? From now on, what's my life going to look like? Am I, am I just going to look like everybody else? Is it just going to be, well, this is what you do? Or am I seriously going to consider, like Christ when he came and God in the Bible, when he talked to his people, he constantly asked them, after he would do something, after he would move in their life, after he would show himself, he would say, now what? Now what are you going to do with it? And so that's what we want to look at this morning. In, first, in 2 Corinthians 5, 15, Paul is writing about the person of Jesus. He's writing to this Corinthian church. This is his probably third letter, but this is a definitely a second letter to this Corinthian church. He's written a first one, and his first letter, he was scathing. Right? We worked through this book last fall, not this past one, but the one before, and we looked at 1 Corinthians, and 
man, Paul just says, what are you people doing? You say from now on, you've been changed, you know Christ, and your life isn't any different from the world. And in his first letter, he just unloads on them. Now he writes the second letter, and he's like, hey, good job, you listened to me, but there's still some things I'm concerned about, and he's encouraging them to keep going. And we come to this place a few chapters in to 2 Corinthians 5, as Paul's writing to this church that he planted and started, and he said, hey, remember, Christ died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised from now on. Dot, dot, dot. We'll look at just a second. He says, look, you have to make a decision. And he's talking to this church. He's like, look, when you think of the from now on, what's ahead, you have to make a decision. What do I believe about the person of God? Who is God? That, That is the basic fundamental question all of humanity has wrestled with. And humanity's come up with all different versions of God, right? They've come up with all different kinds of idols, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, all these different isms that we come up with. And here's the key. When Paul writes this and he says that Christ died, why did Christ die? Not so you could have a great life and have your best life now. No, no, no. He died so that you could then live your life dying to yourself for others like he lived his life. Believing that it's worth doing that because there's a resurrection for you when you die. See, the resurrection is the key to Christianity. Paul even says in another passage that if the resurrection isn't true, then Jesus was a liar and we are to be pitied. In other words, Christianity should be the first religion you dismiss out of all other religions if Jesus isn't God and if he wasn't resurrected. It's the first religion you can dismiss. Pick a different one, because Christianity's really not good compared to the other ones. If you do, I've said this before, but if you do a comparison and you compare like all the shapes when you were a kid and they gave you this paper and they said, which one doesn't match? And you had to pick which one didn't match on the paper. Christianity is the one that doesn't look like any other world religion because all the other religions are laws and rules and man's attempt to please and get to God. Christianity is the only religion that says from the foundation of the world, God's plan was to bring a Messiah through a woman, through a man and a woman. A woman was going to have a seed that would come from God that would save the people. And man is going to fill the earth. He's going to live. He's going to die. But you've got to constantly be crying out to God and saying, God, come save us. And Jesus' name means Yahweh save. Yahweh save us. That's what his name means. And so literally, if if you're going to pick a religion that works really well for humanity, please don't pick Christianity because it doesn't work real well. All the people who picked it in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, most of them got killed for picking it. They were slaughtered and murdered for picking Christianity over Roman deities and over Judaism. They they, they said, we're going to choose it anyway, even though it's not our best life, even though it's not going to work out well, because we actually believe in this Jesus guy who came back from the dead. And all the other religious leaders and people who had great ideas about God, they're dead and still in the grave. They never came back from the dead and then transcended to heaven and said, hey, I'm going to go for a while and then I'm going to come back and get you. And so you have these scared men You have Paul who meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was a Christian killer before he met Jesus and changed his life. And these early disciples were panicked, scared for their life. What takes scared, panicked people after their Messiah, the person they thought that was going to overthrow the Romans and change everything, what takes them from being scared and hiding out to literally being crucified, the sword ran through them, their heads cut off because they believed the message of the gospel? It wasn't because of wealth. It wasn't because they thought their kids were going to get nicer houses than they had. It was because they literally saw a man who was crucified and died come back to life and then transcend to heaven. And they're like, there has been no one like that and there will never be anyone like that because he's God. 
And so when Paul starts out this portion, listen, it's very critical. If you go to from now on without getting this first part, you are powerless, we will see in a minute, to make any change in your life. Any lasting change. Any eternal change. Now, do people, humans, change stuff in their own strength and their own ability? Sure. Doesn't last. Eventually, you run out of strength and ability. But what Paul is writing is he's trying to tell this Corinthian church, look, from now on. You know, in our church, we try to boil it down really simple. And if you've been here, you know this. We talk about from now on, and we talk about go, know, show, and grow. Go, know, show, and grow. Go being God's command to us in Scripture is to go, to fill the earth, to multiply. It's to know who he is and get to know other people. It's to show who God is and show him our love. And let me boil this down for you. We say it all the time. Grow is the natural byproduct of you doing the first three. You don't have to try to grow. Growth is a natural thing that things that produce fruit do. An apple tree doesn't have to try to grow. It's an apple tree. (laughs) An orange tree doesn't have to try to produce oranges. It just produces oranges if it's in healthy soil and has the right thing. Like, it, it doesn't have to try. And we so often, when we look at a new year or a new beginning or when God does something or when we feel like we are rescued from a consequence, we say these things to God and we're like, okay, Lord, from now on, Without thinking through, wait a minute, God, you have called me to come to you, to go to you. You've called me to know you. You've told me, told me to go to others. You've told me to get to know other people so they can get to know you. You've, you've told me to show you my love because of all you've done for me, not because I'm trying to get something. And you've told me to go to others and say, I just want to show you Christ's love and I don't want anything from you. And if I do those things, the natural byproduct will be a different human being. You and me. That's the message of the gospel, and that's what we talk about all the time in our church. Paul goes on to say, he says, from now on, so what's the from now on? We do not know anyone in a purely human way. Even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Remember, Paul is writing to people that have actually seen Jesus. He's writing to people and he's writing to the church and there are people in the church at this time who were old, who were young when Jesus was walking the earth and and they actually saw him. So they're saying, I know you knew Jesus because that would have been a fun thing to say, right? You're like 70 and the young guys are talking about doing good Christian. You're like, I actually saw Jesus. I saw him heal somebody. I hung out with him. I went to a wedding with him. Like you didn't. Like, that would be kind of almost a bragging point. And Paul says, look, we don't know Christ like that anymore. It's not about you knew him when. It's you know him from now on. And he is different than back then. Remember when he went into heaven? You saw angels and light, and he scared the bejeebers out of you because he was transfigured in his glory. And so he says, be careful that you don't look at people in just a purely human way which is in a using way well dismiss dismiss I'll use you I'll not use you you're nothing you're something be very careful because they missed Jesus the first time as the Messiah because they were looking for Jesus to be a purely human Messiah not a spiritual one and when he didn't come and overthrow the Romans and he didn't make life better for them and everything else that the Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders of the day thought the Messiah was going to do, they crucified him. I want nothing to do with that. I don't want a God that shows me something that isn't humanly that I have figured out. And so he says, be careful how you view things. Listen, we have a world that's constantly trying to get us to view everything in a purely human way. What works best for your bank account? What works best for your relationship account and your well-being? What makes you happy? Follow your heart. That is all purely human. It doesn't have anything supernatural attached to it. When Jesus came, he lived a life that was completely supernatural. 
obeyed every Old Testament law, which no human being has ever done before or since except him. Like, so Paul says, therefore, if you understand how to see people in the go, know, show, and grow, if you understand that, if you understand who Christ is, if anyone is in Christ, Christ means Messiah. If any of you are in the Messiah, you believe you can't save yourself. You believe you can't be good enough. You're like, I am totally depending on him to be my savior, my Messiah, and to save me. He says, then you are a new creation. How am I new? I feel pretty old. I'm about I'm getting older. My skin's more wrinkly. <laughs> I feel less and less new every day, <laughs> you know? It's like, no, 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 no. You are a new creation. The old things, the, the old things have passed away, and the new things, the from now ons have come. Like from now on, you need to think and do this way. And when he says old and new, tune in. He is not saying old, bad, new, good. That's how we interpret it in modern days. Most people look at the Old Testament. Oh, that Old Testament's bad. Oh, I'm so glad it's gone. Oh, it's so terrible. Now we got a new grace and God just wants to love us and we get to do whatever we want. It's like, no, he's saying no. It's like the old things were great, but there's just something so much better. Why would you want the old stuff when you can have better, glorious, beautiful new stuff? So why would you want to make sacrifices to lambs when the lamb of God came and made a sacrifice? That makes no sense. It's like literally you have a dishwasher in your home right? And you're like, well, I do the dishes, but I'm carrying them down to the river down here, the Jordan on IU's campus, and I'm going to wash them because that's what my ancestors did. And I got the washboard out. I'm washing. People are like, what are you doing? Like, I'm, I'm washing my dishes. Do you have a sink at home? Yes, but I do it the old way. Everyone's going to look at you and go, you are crazy. And they're going to arrest you because they don't want food particles just washing down the Jordan. I mean, they are. You're going to go to jail. They're going to like, no, you can't do this. When it comes to spiritual things, Jesus is saying the same thing. All these spiritual ways you used to think, like I'm going to earn to God, I'm going to get to God, he's going to be pleased with me if I do this and if I don't do this. He goes, that's all got to die. And you've got to look at things differently from the relationship perspective, not the rule perspective. Are rules good? Absolutely. They're beautiful and wonderful. But if the rules are there because you're trying to get something or earn something or prove something, the Bible says you are in pride. And the Bible says if you're in pride, you are not in Christ. Because he says to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace, a free gift of salvation to those who are humble. And so he looks and he says, look, don't you want things to be new? I do. I want things to be new. But it's like, but we don't, we can't do that. We have to allow God to do this new creation because it's in him. It's not something we have in us. It's got to come from him. That's why he says, if anyone is in Christ. So let me ask you. Are you in Christ? Have you trusted him to come into your life, to forgive you, to make you who he wants to be, and make the greatest trade you could ever make, which is, you died for me, I exchanged my life for your life, and that's it forever. And there's no going back, because God is a covenant-keeping God. He never goes back on his word, and he always fulfills every one of his promises and covenants in his time, on his agenda, for his purposes. Not in our time for our agenda and our purpose. See, we like to twist that. And God is doing things and he's making new things and we're still looking for the old not to go away. You know, a lot of you, if you're really honest inside, many of us try to please God and stay close to God because we don't want him to take the old things away. Oh, I just, I just want to keep God happy because if... If I sin, then maybe, maybe I'll take something away and things are going well. Like, I just, I just want to make sure I'm pleasing God so everything just keeps moving along steady and, and good. And, you know, because if I sin, he's going he's to send a lightning bolt and he's going to get me. And Do you know how wicked that is, according to Scripture? 
That's just wicked thinking. That's old thinking. That's not new thinking. New thinking is the disciples saying, wow, we're being persecuted. Terrible things are happening to us. Awful things are being done. Things are being taken away from us because they think we're like Jesus. And they're like, that's awesome. That's so cool. And I don't know how to do this, but I know if they see me like Jesus, I'm winning. Because I know I've got everything in heaven I could ever want. All of my promises are ahead of me from now on. I'm not looking back for some promise. It's all ahead. He goes on, he says this. Everything is from God. Do you believe that? Even the bad stuff that we label bad? Everything is from God? You know, I was watching, the staff team sent me this week a funny video of a charismatic pastor who uh, had people put their hands on their head in the service and claim baldness be gone. And there were men on, in the service, like, claiming their baldness be gone. Yeah, like, I, all the guys with me are like, yeah, I'm, I'm there. Let's do it. And immediately, by the grace of God, I thought, No. Do you know how cheap my haircuts are? They're free. It's like, it takes like 15 minutes. I don't have to drive to a hair place. I don't have to schedule an appointment. I literally pull out a pair of clippers and I am done. It's so beautiful. I figured that cutting my own hair over the last 20 years, I've saved almost $3,500. I figured it up because I was like, wow. I don't need any products. I don't need shampoo. I don't need conditioner. I just use soap on my head. Just soap. I don't, I don't have to spend all that money on stuff. It's so beautiful. I get in the shower, I just need a bar of soap. That's it. I don't need all that stuff that's lined up. Like, I'm free of all that, right? I mean, it's beautiful. Now, I don't have any feelers, so I bump into stuff all the time, and I have cuts on my head, you know, because you don't have the hair feelers, which I used to make fun of my father-in-law four years ago because he'd bump into stuff and his head would all be cut. Now I look in the mirror, and I'm like, oh, man, I shouldn't have made fun of him. It's all coming back on me now. <laughs> But like I started thinking about it and I thought, no, being bald is a sign of like age. And I'm really glad I'm not 25 anymore. I was a moron at 25. I am so glad God has helped me grow beyond 25. And I thought I was so much smarter at 25 than I do now. Like now I realize how absolutely insane and dumb I am without Christ. Back then I was like, oh, I'm doing pretty well. (laughs) No. Thankfully, I had good counselors around me. They're just patting me on the back and like, we love you. No. <laughs> like, all of that, as this guy's saying, no, God wants to give you all the feels, every, the way you want to look, all the things. And Paul's like, no. There's, there's something new. Let the old pass away. Let the hair fall out. God's doing something new. It's going to be shiny, new. He goes on and says this. Everything is from God who reconciled to himself. See, God is not reconciling things for our benefit. He's not reconciling things so we can have a better country and a better land. No, no, no. He's reconciling all of creation back to the way it's supposed to be, back to himself. And he says, through Christ... That's what he's doing. Through Jesus, who is the firstborn of all creations. Colossians 1 says Christ is the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things were created. All things through Christ. God desires that the full glory of the Godhead be on his son, the Bible says. He says, so through Christ, and then what he does is not only does he reconcile us, we'll look at that word in a minute, he gives us the ministry of reconciliation, of us going out and telling people, hey, there's hope for you as you're getting old. There's hope for you as all the stuff you thought that was going to save you, all the stuff, all the old things are passing away, there is hope. There is a reconciliation coming. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, things they do against God, their sins, against them, and he has committed the message, that message of God coming into the world in Christ, saying you can be forgiven of your sins, he's he's committed the message of reconciliation to us, to us as believers. That it's our job to look at people and say everything's getting old. 
Everything's passing away. You might look pretty now. You might have it all together now. But I am telling you, it's going to end badly. And he says, but there is a ministry. There is a reconciliation you're looking for that isn't going to come from having a good head of hair. It's not going to come from having a great body. It's not going to come from having wealth. It's going to come from what Christ has done and the hope of heaven that awaits. And that's the message that we have to the world. And can I tell you, it's unfortunate that most of Christianity is running around trying to convince people how to have a better life now. And you wonder why our young people, 75% or 80% of young people raised in evangelical, that's Bible-believing churches, are leaving the church and never coming back. That's the most recent statistic. Why? Because we've told them, God's got, it's all for you. No, it's all for God. He's going to reconcile all things back to himself, and you want to participate in that reconciliation process. And yes, God blesses. And no, we shouldn't be dumb and just do whatever we want. We should be a blessing in the world. Jeremiah 29 says that. Jeremiah 29 says we should be a blessing to the land that God has put us in. Wherever we find ourselves, in whatever culture, whatever nation, whatever people, we should be looking to be a blessing to point them to the God who loves them and wants them. So I'm not saying we don't care. I'm just saying we should care way more about whether people are reconciled to God or not than we are about our budgets and are our budgets reconciled to Dave Ramsey. Because in the end, I don't have to stand before Dave and give an account. I do have to stand before the God of the universe. He goes on and says this. Well, kataluso means this. This is the word for reconciliation or to be reconciled. It says to properly, decisively change. As when two parties reconcile when coming, changing to the same position. It means both parties have to change. It's not one party winning the other party over. It's both parties saying, we're going to do our part to reconcile this, to come together to the right position. 1 Corinthians 7.11 talks about it applied to marriage and the importance of reconciliation in marriage relationships. It's something we talk about in our church. What does it mean to be reconciled in Christ to a person that maybe divorced you or left you or the mess that's there? It's got to be in Christ because you're not just going to be able to make all the old things right again. They're messed up. They're broken. They're shattered. Some of it can be made right. Some of it may never be able to be made right. But I hope that you can, from now on, reconcile it to God and reconcile it to the other person in a way that's God-honoring. It means the redemption of a sinner reconciled to the Lord. But the original use, look at this, of the word cataloso means the exchange of coins. To properly change or exchange, especially money. That neither of you are trying to get a better deal over the other person. You're willingly exchanging for the greater good. For the greater goal. You're doing the right thing. That's what God did. Christ came and he did all of this. He reconciled all things back to himself. Do you understand the exchange that you make in the ministry of reconciliation? See, most people don't understand that. They don't want to be reconciled to God. They just don't want to be judged by God. Well, that's not reconciliation. That's like, you do you, I do me, we're good, right? That's not reconciliation, that's just coldness. Reconciliation is, I want you to do Christ. I'm gonna do Christ. Can we do Christ? Can we come together in this? Can can we walk together in focusing on what's truly important? He goes on and says this, Paul writes in Ephesians, when he writes the letter to the church in Ephesus, he says, therefore be imitators of God. This is after he's laid out the position of Christ and who Christ is, pushing back against the idolatry in Ephesus. He says, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. See, you're not a child unless you've been born again. And so Paul tells them, he says, you've been reconciled, and not only have you been reconciled and you're just a slave, no, no, God calls you children. He wants that relationship with you. And then he says, and walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. 
Remember, it's God's definition of love, not ours. The Bible says God is love. And so every single thing that God has ever done, ever will do, and ever has forever is loving. When you read Revelation and you see all the bad stuff that we think is bad happening, God is acting in love. The question is, what is the object of love? When God is judging the world, it's because the object of love is his son. And how the world treated his son and the righteousness that needs to be upheld for how people responded to Jesus. He's looking at the martyrs who were killed for standing up for the ministry of reconciliation. And he's looking and saying, yes, to be loving to these martyrs, I have to carry out justice because it would be unloving not to be just. He doesn't separate his love and justice. They're always together. It's not like he stops doing love and does justice. That's not how God works. He's the same forever and always. His character never changes. They're both at the same time. So we have to figure out what God's definition of love is. If we don't know that, then the from now on, we're going to mess up. Because we're going to come up with a version of love that isn't God's love. It's a version of love that's permissive. Why? Because love is actually way too hard. Love is way too difficult. True godly love is what he just said. Giving yourself as a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Not to the other person. You give yourself to God and God will tell you how the other person you should interact with. He goes on, Paul later in that chapter says, and for what makes everything clear is light. Everything is made clear when the light's on, right? Have you ever tried to do stuff in the dark? You like stub your toe, do stupid things, and you're like, why didn't I turn the light on? Like we all carry a light in our pocket and we're walking around the dark, like, I can find this. It's like, like wait, like the light helps to see clearly. He says, therefore it is said, get up sleeper and rise up from the dead and the Messiah will shine on you. That means you have to recognize you're a lazy sleeper and it means you have to actually say, God, I can't get up because I'm dead so you're going to have to give me life. And the Messiah says, okay, I'll shine on you. (laughs) I'll, I'll give you a path out, he says. Pay careful attention then to how you walk. Because you need light to see where you're walking. If you don't, you'll trip over stuff and hurt yourself. And you'll scare everybody around you. That happened in our house last week. Someone was running through the house and tripped over something. It sounded like somebody was coming through the ceiling. It was like, what just happened? And then we hear screaming and craziness and we're like, what is going on? Well, what happens when you run through the house without a light on? (laughs) There's stuff in the way. Goes on and he says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. What is wise? Well, it's what God says is wise. What's unwise? What God says is unwise. Making the most of the time because the days are evil. Every day is clamoring for you not to obey God, not to honor him, not to be reconciled to him not to reconcile other people to him. Every day you wake up, there is a battle going on. Every day you wake up, there's a battle. And the battle's, hey, do what you want to do today. Versus, I need to do what God wants me to do today. (laughs) I need to do what, what people have been doing thousands of years who love God do today. That could be different for all of us. But do you even ask the question or do you just assume, well, God's with me so I can do whatever I want every day. That is not a wise way to live. He goes on and he says, make the most of the time that's been given. You don't know how long you have. I don't either. And then he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Well, how do we understand the Lord's will? Well, you get in the Bible like we're doing this morning. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions. Waste of time. Like, Don't be controlled by things. Wine is what Paul picks here, but there's all kinds of things that will lead us to reckless actions. Then he says, but, here's a key, be filled with the Spirit. See, you can't do this on your own. The Spirit of God has to fill you to do this stuff. And then he says, if you want to see if you're filled by the Spirit, if you want to see if you're truly walking in wisdom, well, are you walking according to the Spirit? Well, what does it look like to walk according to the Spirit? Well, how do you do in speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Is the word of God on your lips? Is his praise on your lips with your family? 
when you're driving, when you're at work, when you're under the car and can't get a bolt loose? It's his praise on your lips. I mean, you can make the choice when you don't feel like giving praise to speak praise. That's what I did under the car. I'm pulling on the bolt, and I'm like, Lord, thank you that moth and rust destroy here, but moth and rust do not destroy in heaven. I am so glad that there'll be no rusty bolts in heaven. Like, I'm, I'm literally, like, saying scriptures because I'm going bananas under that car. I could have thrown tools. I could have cursed. I could have done whatever. And by the grace of God, because I filled my heads with spiritual things, I'm thinking spiritual things while I'm trying to get this dumb bolt off. See, it's just a switch. And you could say, okay, I was walking in the spirit in that moment. He goes on and he says, do you sing spiritual songs, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord? Or do you sing silly songs? Like what kind of songs pop in your head? Are they spiritual songs? Or are they just dumb songs that don't mean anything? He goes on and he says, giving thanks always for everything. Well, if you believe everything comes from God, well, then you can give thanks for everything. But if you struggle to believe that everything comes from God, then it's really hard to give thanks for everything. So you give thanks in all things. Thank you that I'm learning how to get this bolt off. Thank you that when I dropped my car off to have the alignment done on my car, I got to look at the guy, and the guy looked at me, and he's like, oh, you have to cut those bolts off? I was like, nope, by the grace of God, I was able to press them out. And he was like, man, that's impressive. I'm like, God's impressive. I got to have a spiritual conversation at the tire shop. I don't do that all the time. Sometimes I fail. Sometimes tools go flying and I have to ask forgiveness and repent. And he says, look at this. Giving thanks to who? To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can't even give thanks to God if Jesus doesn't do it through me. He's got to change me to be to give thanks to him. He's got to take my thanks and give it to the Father. He stands interceding before the throne on our behalf. So when we pray prayers, Jesus takes those prayers to the Father, the Bible says. Then he goes on and he says, look at this. So it's not only about you and God submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. The willingness to humble yourself, to submit to one another because you fear God more than you fear what you won't have in this life. You're not worried about the from now on, so you can submit to other people in a way that points them to God. Now, submission doesn't mean you give people whatever they want. Jesus didn't do that. That's not what submission means. We've made submission mean that. We've redefined submission. Submission just means to place yourself under for a greater purpose. That's what it means. And like, Jesus placed himself in a human body. We just celebrated kind of the remembrance of that at Christmas. Died on a cross so that we could have access to God. He submitted himself to every earthly ruler and authority so that we could be delivered. And he says, do it in the fear of Christ. In other words, don't submit to God because you're afraid from now on he won't bless you. He won't give you stuff. Don't have that. Be so in love with Jesus and so enthralled with him that you're afraid of disappointing him more than you're afraid of not getting or having something taken from you. He goes on and says this in John 15. Here's how Jesus put it. He said, I am the true vine and my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. And I will remain in you, I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Because you can do nothing without me, Jesus says. Nothing. He says, I'm the true vine. There's a bunch of false vines out there. I'm the true vine you want to be connected to. Be careful what you connect to. And then he says, if you know me, you don't have to worry. We're good. Like you look, some people look at this verse and it makes them doubt like that God loves them, right? They look at this and they think, oh, I'm not producing enough fruit. So God, I must be wrong with God. He says, have you produced any fruit? 
Are you different than you were before you came to know Christ? Do you see the world a little differently? Then that's probably God working in you if you know Christ. Why are you so worried about God taking salvation from you? Why are you so scared of him like that? That's not what he says. He says he wants you to be confident that he will trim you. I'm not just going to rip you off. I'm going to trim you up so you're beautiful and you produce fruit. But you got to let me trim. i got to cut the dead stuff off. My wife's trying to save a poinsettia right now. I'm ready to trim that thing and throw it out. It's got no leaves on it. She's like, look, but there's some new growth. I'm going to try to save it. And I'm like, oh, okay, praise the Lord. Hopefully you can save it. I don't know. God says, I'm not interested in throwing you out. I'm interested in making you produce fruit. He goes on, he says, my father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, I also love you. Remain in my love. Remain in the fact of the promise that I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you. How much more times do I have to say it? Believe it, live it. Stop doubting it. The reason you doubt God's love is because you don't believe what God says is loving is loving. You believe the world's version of love and you get mad at God and say, you don't love me because you don't give me this version of love. That's the mess we're in. He goes on, he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Do you love my commands, statutes, ordinances, and precepts? Do you love the Bible? Do you love the Old Testament? Not that you're doing it all, because you can't, but do you love that it's there to give you wisdom and guidance and show you how the world's supposed to work? He says, just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love, I've spoken these things to you so that my, look at this, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. The fruit of joy. This is my command, love one another as I've loved you. In other words, he doesn't just stop about this, it's about me and you and my father and we have a loving relationship. Every time Jesus says, love God, love people. First four commands of the Old Testament, love God. Next six commands of the of the Ten Commandments are love people. They're always interconnected. They're the same. People who say, I'm a Christian, I love God, and they're not a part of a church, they're not a part about serving people, I, I question whether they understand the love of God. Because they are interconnected in a way that will cost you. Because it costs Jesus. And then he says, look, no one has greater love than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. Do you see God's people as your friends or your enemies? Do you even know how to distinguish between someone who's a person of God and someone who isn't? Or if someone says, well, I know Jesus. Oh, okay, well, then you must be a Christian. There's a lot of people running around saying they know Jesus who do not know Jesus. Jesus himself said, there's going to be a lot of people who come to heaven one day and they say, Lord, Lord, I'm going to say, I don't know you. He goes on and he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. And what is the greatest commandment he's given us? Reconciliation from now on. The greatest command is, I've reconciled you. Respond to that, and then go out and tell other people how great it is to know me. He goes on, he says, when the counselor comes, remember he, Paul said in Ephesians, to be filled with the Spirit. When the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. The Holy Spirit never glorifies the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always, 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 always glorifies Jesus, Period. Jesus always glorifies the Father. They work together. And then he says, you will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to the God of Israel. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Do you know the Father? Do you know Christ? Do you understand what Jesus is writing here about staying connected to him? Galatians, Paul writes again. He says, look, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. For you are called to be free, brothers, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to get what you want, but to serve one another through the love of God, through love. I say then, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh, that's every morning you wake up, desires what's against the Spirit. And the Spirit desires what's against the flesh. The flesh says stay in bed. The Spirit says let's go do something. He says there are, these are opposed to each other. Why? So that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under 
the law. You don't have to live with this tension of I got to please God. I got to. If you're in the spirit, you're like, I know God loves me and I know he's changing me and I know he's trimming me up and I know he's helping me from now on. He says, the works of the flesh are obvious. And then Paul lists all these terrible things. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, when Paul says, I want to produce much fruit, he's not saying, I want to give you a church of a thousand. I want to give you lots of money. I want to give you all these earthly fruits. He says, no, the fruit I'm looking for is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. You can do as much of these as you want. You can have as much of this as you want. You can have as much love as you want, as much peace as you want, as much joy as you want. There's no law against too much joy. There's no law against having too much peace with God. And he says, now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, they go, that's the old, the new has come from now on. And then he says, since we live by the Spirit, we live with the Spirit of God empowering us, we must also follow the Spirit. Not what we feel, but what God says is true. We must not become conceited. Because see, that's what happens. We start following the Spirit, and then we're like, oh, I'm in the Spirit. And we start getting prideful, and then we're going to hit a wall. It's like, no, don't do that. Don't provoke one another. Don't be conceited. He says, don't envy one another. Don't look and say, well, they got that, and they have this, and they have that. Yeah, they do. That's what God wanted them to have. Praise the Lord. But what are you doing with what God's given you? Because see, I like to point my finger at everybody else so I don't have to point it back at myself and do anything. It's just so easy. He goes on and says this in 2 Corinthians as he wraps up. Or I'm sorry, wait. Ecclesiastes says it this way. Ecclesiastes is what we're going. Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is the wisest man to ever exist outside of Jesus who came in the New Testament. Solomon writes three books. He writes a passion book, Song of Solomon, that's about marriage and beauty and wonder of marriage. And everybody looks at that book and says, oh, yeah, I want a marriage like that. No, you don't. You don't want a marriage like that. You want to know why? Because Solomon didn't, wasn't satisfied with a marriage like that. So he got 700 other wives, 699 other wives and 300 concubines to try to keep up that feeling of Song of Solomon. Now, does that mean there aren't good things in Song of Solomon? There are. But then Solomon had to write a second book, which is Proverbs, because he realized you can't live by passion. You've got to be wise in life if you're going to make it. So he wrote Proverbs to be wise. Then at the end of his life, Solomon realizes, I've done all the passion, I've done all the wisdom, and it's absolutely futile. <laughs> Everything is futile. I've done it all, I've experienced it all, and it's just the same result for everybody. We all die, and everybody gets our stuff. What's the point? And then he says in verse 13, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter of life, of wisdom, of everything, is to fear God and keep his commands. Because this is for all humanity. Isn't that what Paul, we just read Paul, told the churches? Isn't that what Jesus in John 15 just told his disciples? And in the Old Testament, Solomon figured it out as the wisest man. He said, at the end of the day, fear God and keep his commands. Like truly look to him and be in awe of him and not a fear of like, ooh, I'm afraid he's going to get me so i got to keep him happy. That's a false fear. A fear that says, God, I just want you to be God. I want you to get all the glory. I want to get out of the way so people can see you. That was the whole point of the Old Testament was God to create a people that could show the rest of the world what it looked like to truly submit to God and tell him he was great. And they said, nope, don't want to do that. So he says that's what it's about. So what do we do with all this from now on? Well, if you are in Christ, if you know Jesus, then Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us. I want you to think about that for a minute. Most of you wrestle with, does God even love me? Does he even care? Does he even want to use me? Why? Why do you wrestle with that? The promise is right there. If you know Christ, he has given you a position of authority and beauty and glory. He has made you an ambassador. Ambassadors aren't to be messed with, not without consequences in countries. You mess with an ambassador, you mess with the whole nation. 
An ambassador tries to go and represent the nation they're from. We have been reconciled to heaven and sent back to earth. God could suck me up into heaven at any moment and I'd be much more happy than I am here. With the like, Yes, please. God's like, no, no, I'm sending you back. I want you to live for me. Christ left heaven to come to earth for us. Then he gives us heaven and says, I want you to stay on earth for me. Great trade. And he says, look, you are my ambassadors. Please be certain that you understand that God is actually appealing to all of humanity, your family, your friends, your roommates. The world is trying to make an appeal to be reconciled back to him in a right relationship through you. He's not trying to use this organization and that church and this church. Yes, we gather together. We call ourselves FX Church. Yes, we need leadership structure. I mean, Paul wrote letters to Corinth, to Corinth and specific churches. The New Testament writes, or Revelation writes seven letters to seven specific churches. So yes, we have a specific church name, a specific body with leadership and help. I get that. But it's not about us becoming some great church that gets our brand out there. No, you guys are the church. And we come back together to be encouraged by one another so that we can go back out every week and do the ministry of reconciliation. It's not about getting them to come here and and like get reconciled if I can just get them to church. No, you're the ministry of reconciliation. Can you bring them and show them what people reconciled to God looks like? Absolutely. Do that. Invite them. Bring them. But that is not what the church is about. The church is about going to get to know people, showing who God is, and then exposing and saying, look at how I've grown because of what he's done. That's the point of the message of Christianity. It's not about coming and getting filled back up every Sunday. It's the idea that I'm filled all the time in the power of the Holy Spirit. When I come and come to my, my, my family, I'm just, I'm here filled up. I'm just so excited that I'm here. God doesn't like empty me out and then I gotta wait till Sunday to get filled back up. No. He says, from now on, I'm gonna fill you. Then he says, look at this. We plead. Why do we plead? Because our country's going to hell in a handbasket? Oh, we gotta plead with people to reconcile to God because we have terrible politicians. <laughs> We've always had terrible politicians. I mean, do your history. Look back at politicians. They're awful. That's how they got to be politicians, by manipulating and doing stuff. Are there some good ones? Yes, there are. But normally, like, they get changed while they're in office. Like, something happens and it changes them. And, like, then they're not liked anymore and they get voted out. God is saying, our job is to go out and plead with people. Do you understand that there's coming a day when you're going to stand before Christ? Do you understand there's a God who came from heaven to earth to save you and it's different than every other world religion? I plead with you. Consider these things. I plead with you. Be reconciled to God before it's too late. That's our job. That's the job Christ came and did when he walked this earth. And then he says, look, the reason you can do this ministry, the reason you can be confident that God calls you from now on to be an ambassador, you can be certain that God is appealing through you even though you are a mess and a disaster and he's constantly pruning and helping you. The reason you can plead that people be reconciled is not because you're some great Christian and you go, look at everything I did and if you just do all these things, you can have the life I have. May not work. He says... He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the actual righteousness of God in him. See, it's not about me trying to get people right with God. That's not what it's about. It's about me showing people that they can never be right with God, that I could never be right with God, no matter how much I do, if Jesus had not come and reconciled me and paid the price and the exchange for my soul and then declared me, you are righteous in my sight. I have made you right. I have cleaned you up. You are mine. And I'm going to continue to fulfill the vow and the covenant I have made with you until your dying day. Is it hard? Yeah. Do we have to remind ourselves of the from now on? Yeah. Are we going to stop working out for a couple of days or weeks or whatever and be like, oh, I got to get back? Yeah. 
And that's why you need people around you to encourage you. It's why in all those verses we read, it was God and people, God and people. You've got to have both. It's not just you and God, and it's not just I find a great church and they've got all these systems and I just do them and my life turns out well. No, it's about literally open-handed. God, this is what I believe and I'm surrendering to you from now on. Help me. And he will. And he does. So let me ask you this morning, do you know Christ? Have you surrendered to him? Have you finally said, you know what? I am done with the old. I keep going back to the old version of religion and trying to measure up and doing works and thinking that my works are, I'm done with it. I'm just going to trust in Christ. I'm going to believe he will do what he says he'll do. I can go to him and he says, I want to know you. I want to show you who I am and I will grow you. If that's your heart, then surrender this morning. Just say, you know what, from now on, on January 1st, 2023, I remember the day I said, okay, Lord, not like all the other times when I was studying for a test, I need you to try to get me an A because I didn't study. And I'm praying. No, 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 I'm serious. I'm done. I'm done. And I just want you. I want to fear you and I want to know your commands and I want to live for you and I want to understand what the world and what the future world that's coming is about. If you just surrender to what Jesus has done for you, The Bible says he promises he will give you a home with him, that you will be his family, and he won't ever disown you or leave you. And if you're a believer, what's the from now on that God is dealing with in your heart? That he's asking you to consider in 2023 saying, you know what, Lord, there's some from now on, I I need to deal with this in my life. I'm going to get some people around me to help me I really want to love you and give you my all in this area so that from now on I am your ambassador reconciled to you. I want to surrender. Would you just confess that to him in this next moment? And would you tell somebody to help you? You need help. You can't do it on your own. I promise. That's why God gave you parents. (laughs) Because you can't do it on your own. You can't feed yourself. You can't work a job. You need parents. You need other people. You need brothers and sisters. You need help. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the from now on. Thank you for these scriptures. Lord, I look forward to working through Ecclesiastes written by one of the wisest men. And Thanks for this Sunday, just giving us a pause for a moment in between our series and Revelation and coming up and just causing us to really think about what's our from now on going to be. Lord, I thank you for these seasons. I thank you for the feast that you put in the Old Testament and In our culture, I thank you for these moments that call people out and call us to reconsider what our life is about. And so, Lord, I thank you that right now we can just go to you. We can be honest with you. We can pour out our heart to you. If someone doesn't know you, today can be the day when they say, you know what, I'm done. From now on, I I trust you. I surrender to who you are, Jesus. You came, you died, you rose again, and I believe it. And I'm done. And Lord, I pray that if they pray that prayer, that they would tell somebody about it. Because it does, it changes you. You recognize that when the Spirit comes in you, you're different. There's something that will never be the same. And so I pray that they would tell someone about that decision. Those that are joining online, if anyone prays, I pray they would reach out to us or another believer and tell them what they've done to trust you. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, I pray that we would see that you really do love us, that you've reconciled us to yourself. You want us to be your ambassadors. You want us to be certain of our relationship with you so that we can make an appeal to others about how great you are. And I pray that 2023 would be a year that we do that, that we'd begin to truly fear you and believe your commands are good because that is the chief end of all of humanity. And so we thank you this morning. We praise you as we sing these next few words, I pray that we'd mean it. And we thank you and praise you for all you continue to do. We look forward to your return. And we thank you that you've given us something very important to do while we wait in your name. Amen.